Hello and welcome to the first Identity Architects of 2023. By now, hopefully you will know that the purpose of this podcast is to spotlight pioneers in our industry who are changing the way that data is used to drive more engaging data-driven experiences. I'm your host, Ben Cicchetti, and for this episode, our SVP of Sales for Europe, Stuart Coleman, sat down with Di Mays, Global Head of Data and AI at WPP, to discuss data transformation, privacy, collaboration, and much, much more. Before I hand it over to Stu and Di, just a reminder to hit that subscribe button so you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But without any further delay, here's Stu's conversation with Di. Today I am very pleased to be joined by Guy Mays, who I'm just looking at my notes here, is the Global Head of Data and AI. So I'm sure we're going to get into questions about data and maybe robots, um, at WPP I should say. Um, Guy, welcome. Hey Stu, thanks for having me. Good. Um, do you want to start by just giving people uh, just a quick intro to yourself? I know you well, we've known each other for about four years or so since I started at InfoSoft. Um, but lovely for you to just kind of give an overview to the world of who you are, what you do, um, a little bit of your history would be fantastic. Yeah, hi. Um, so I'm, yeah, as you said, Global Head of Data and AI for WPP. Uh, the first thing I always say when I describe my role, I'm not a data scientist, but I absolutely love data and the opportunity it can bring to uh, build a fairer and uh, more inclusive society. So I'm all about bringing data to life, giving our fantastic data talent uh, globally, a platform to share their work, to make sure we have a focus on insights rather than data, have some fun with the storytelling. I started my data career in Dunhumby in 2006, and they just such a brilliant culture. So it taught me that data can be fun. And if you create an environment where you unleash people's inner nerd, then um, you can really do some brilliant things with data. So I've been in this role since 2019 and um, just love it. Brilliant. And, and you are one of the most passionate and engaging people I've met in the data space. So um, oh, looking thanks. forward to kind of hearing that passion today and, and uh, kind of learning a bit more about you and your history and, and also getting a bit kind of uh, into the depths of your brain and some of your insights and some of your knowledge about um, the use of data, the role of data, and some of the stuff you've been talking about there about data is way more than just ones and noughts. It's actually got a life. It's got something that we can uh, we can work with and play with. Format, uh, as always with these Identity uh, Architects podcasts, is we'll do a few quick fire questions. I'm going to try and keep you to about a minute per question right. or minute per answer. That's all right. Uh, so we've got kind of seven or eight of those where just uh, a few things to give us a bit of insight about you. And then we're going to dive deep into some of the kind of uh, more um, meaty questions around the role of data, the importance of data, the use of data, some of the stuff that really is bread and butter for you, but I'm sure the listeners will be uh, really uh, engaged with what you have to say and the thoughts you have to share. So again, thank you for coming. Um, let's start with, what's your earliest memory of advertising? Oh, this totally brings me back to being a school kid, getting home from school, being stuck in front of the telly with yep. some Nesquik, sandwich spread sandwich, how revolting is that? Oh, Penguin biscuit. <laughs> Um, so it would be something around at the time, like Milky Bars are on me. It would be something that I can sing along to where I realised that actually ads could be entertaining and actually a bit of a break from the programming. Um, and I've always loved ads for that. Yeah, TV advertising was brilliant, wasn't it? The, the lip adverts for the for BA. Um, oh, I'm not just... sure we're allowed to talk about um, smoking adverts, but the Hamlet adverts no. are genius. No, um, don't talk the... about them. Join the club. Yeah. Oh, yes, that romance. Brilliant days. days. And that obviously gave you a, um, I'm sure like many of us, a passion for advertising and and the space. So, um, you know, you you obviously moved into advertising as a a, um, a career. What was your first job in kind of advertising or marketing? Tell us a little bit about that. It was it was kind of both actually. I did a business studies degree that had two sets of six months in industry, and I found the course actually really very dull. Even though I've always been fascinated in business and decisions and the culture, I thought it was really dull. But there was a subject called buyer behaviour that totally made me realise um, how I <laughs> might have been influenced, yeah, subconsciously <laughs> that I didn't I didn't know about. So my I did a work placement at Auto Trader where. So I'm really old. This is 1996. I wrote the metadata for the car ads for the first Auto Trader website. 
and then joined Hearst UK, which is a glossy magazine publisher and was their first online manager in 1999. So right at the start, you're in there with data. Yeah, I just loved it. I didn't know I did. And then I thought I was a misfit, but actually I found my groove now and I'm not a misfit in this role, but I was yeah. for, for much of my career. Brilliant. And you, you've had a stellar career since, and, and we hope we'll learn a bit more about that as we go through. But um, knowing what you know now and the things that you've learned and the experiences that you've had, looking back to that time and that, that young guy starting at uh, Autotrader and, and writing those ads, what would you say to yourself now um, in terms of the things to look forward to and the things that, that perhaps uh, uh, you would do differently or, or uh, embrace more as you've gone through your career? I would tell younger die that you're nerdy just it's okay just unleash it but at the time I, I just thought I was a misfit particularly in glossy magazines and I was told yeah. I wasn't glamorous or memorable and and actually people do remember me talking about data but I guess in the magazine world where that's not what you want to listen to people talk about so I was I was I was a misfit there but actually and the, the inclusivity of a data career, because there's something for everyone, whether you yep. you love getting in and doing the data science or you love the storytelling or you, you want to champion the people, um, there's something for everyone. So that's what I say. Yeah, absolutely. And um, clearly you do have a passion. We talked about that right at the start. But what is it about um, your job and your the, the career that you have right now that you really love? What is it about it that, that kind of makes you so excited? I just, I'll never be done. There's always new talent, there's people moving, there's new skills. By the time I feel like I've swatted up on everything I need to know about a certain tech, it's updated or someone's done something new with it. And yep. I keep forgetting all the stats principles, so then I have to remind myself. And just from a from an intellectual greediness, I'll just never this you'll just never know everything. And I yeah, just love that. It's that blend of um I guess of advertising never really stops. There's always innovation and growth in advertising. Data is on this massive trajectory of, of evolution and, and development, and that's that's fantastic. And the technology that underpins it, you know, I can't remember the principle about computer um, kind of repeating itself every two years mm. or whatever it is. But you know, things like ChatGPT these days is, you know, is, is the big thing. But things like that just mean that it's, it, it never stops. There's always something new to learn and something to do, isn't there? And I think it's a really good intellectual discipline to not be scared. You know, I see my parents being scared of tech and they assume something's wrong with them and they've done it wrong. And and I think with data and the tech, if you just accept that you won't know it and it's a journey and you're okay with that, um, then it can just be really fulfilling. Just to, Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, I think the storytelling bit, we'll, we'll get into that, that a bit, I think, later. I think the storytelling bit is a really key bit of, of data I and mean, it's often overlooked it's often the bit that isn't perhaps as uh, understood or appreciated people think of the nerds and the techie bit and they think of the, the advertising at the end but no, it's the glue that's that where the together. beauty is i mean <laughs> that's that's where everybody can get involved and celebrate small data and slow data it doesn't all have to be big and complex and yep. complicated some of the favorite stories at wpp are using one maybe two data sets yep. and you know brilliant creative work yeah. done on restaurant reviews to sell a type of ketchup for example that's not a complicated <laughs> no it's um it is quite or can be quite a daunting subject though so um if you were asked to explain what you do or um you know, the role of identity or term identity i guess which is you know, kind of sits at the heart of data in, in a modern world if you were to explain that to a 10 year old and kind of get them to understand what you do or, or what we do i guess um how would you go about that it's a, it's a really it's a really good one to deconstruct identity on, on I'd say to a 10 year old it's what makes you human because the default is name or mobile number but actually it's what do you choose to do with your time particularly online yep. which leaves quite a footprint so if you made your a photo of yourself and made it into pixels all those different pixels are different parts of you that tell a story of who you are and if you look at those I'm We've done it before in presentations where we've done a blurry Mona Lisa and it's like, this is somebody who we don't know. And then you move forward. And I, I used an example before to actually explain to my son on buy a present for someone you've never met before versus buy a present for your best mate. And if you deconstruct how much easier it is to buy for your best mate versus a present for someone you've never met before, it's those things that make them who they are as an individual. 
yeah, that's it's a really good, uh, it's a really good understanding, I guess, or, or explanation. But we, I guess, we often default to identity as being a person, being a uh, you know, a, a named thing like an email address or phone number. But you're right; it's 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 our presence in the world, it's our footprint on the world, it's the things we do, it's the things we interact with and engage with that, that make us who we are, without necessarily knowing specifically who I am. I guess that's um, it's, it's a good way of looking at it, and I guess a ten year old would be able to understand that. I'd want my email and my name to be the least interesting parts of my yeah. identity. I I didn't actually pick my name. <laughs> there are some interesting emails out there as well, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <So> okay. <laughs> and, and obviously, um, you know, data is a, it's a big subject, and we're going to say jump into some detail in a minute. Um, but when you think about your role and you think about the job that you have to do, and you think about the things you're trying to achieve, what what kind of keeps you up at night? What kind of keeps you thinking and Worrying is perhaps the wrong word, but but what are you what are you aware of, and what things are would you like to perhaps try and solve or or uh, help you sleep at night? I'm really conscious about the unintended consequences of data, and then how how that feeds in to AI, um, and then what we eventually will be asking the machines to do. And no one, well, let's say not no one, but most people don't mean any harm, yeah. whether you're accidentally or unintentionally offering different prices to different ethnicities or genders or whether you're excluding groups you know the digital divide is real and uh, could be helped by data but possibly is being made worse I think the KPIs that we have to set you know it's got to be more efficient and it's got to be more cost effective and you've got to do more with less is potentially creating bubbles in society and that that worries me and it's never the data that's the evil person it's the bad actor but i i worry yeah. about that it's an interesting debate um uh, around you know bad actor and, and all that stuff and you use the phrase at the start the unintentional um consequences and whose responsibility do we think that is to to kind of uh, prevent that is it ours is it is it um the technology where does that kind of responsibility sit and i think it has to go back to a human so wherever that human is i do yeah. i do think it would be helpful if as a culture in the world we moved away from cancel immediately and more into forgiveness mm-hmm. and learning because i think i think that doesn't help that oh no i've made a mistake of accidentally you know, unintentionally charge somebody more for this, which I shouldn't have done or targeted someone differently. And actually that doesn't reflect very well on my brand. And I think that fear of being cancelled and the lack of forgiveness. And I think if we as society, we all try and move on on accept there's mistakes and where there's mistakes, there's great learnings. And if people learn and companies learn from that, then um, we can we can move forward and make sure we do keep progressing. Yeah, I say it's, I think it's an interesting one, and um, I, I guess there's a debate. We won't get into it now because we've we've only got a short amount of time to talk to each other. But I'd love to talk to you at some point. I mean, is the answer to that more data or less data, or is it better data or cleaner data? Or you know, there's so many kind of approaches to how you try and control or, or uh, manage those kind of concerns. I guess, but the, the always comes back to a human. I think is definitely a an interesting debate um and what are you rewarding your teams to do i mean if you think yeah. about the kpis or the okrs or the objectives or the goals or whatever language you use as a company if you're just pushing for efficiencies and revenue all the yeah. time there will be unintentional harm to yeah. people in society let's not go down that rabbit hole because we'll be here forever <laughs> <laughs> let's come back to the quick fire questions i've got two more for you um okay so what what motivates you in the morning what makes you want to get up and get to work and and uh and, and do the things that you do Oh, so much. Talking to our data teams in our agencies, um, just what they're working on, working with clients. I love being dropped into a client and getting to know the people and clients on what's your data, what are you doing with it? Just learning more about what people are doing with data, what they need, what they don't. Love hearing about quirky things done with new data sets. That makes me so happy when I think about people doing creative things with data. Brilliant. And uh, there's plenty of data out there at the moment that I think is quite interesting and uh, innovative. So I think um, if that's what motivates you, you've certainly got a lot of uh, enjoyment to come. 
And I want to catch up with you. I think we should do a whole nother podcast on uh, data that's got value that people aren't extracting as much <laughs> as they should out of it. I'll happily talk to you about that. Great. Last last question on the quickfire, and then we'll dive into uh, a bit more kind of detail. So um, my favourite question, if there was a song that was the soundtrack of your life, what would it be? Oh, it's got to be Queen, Don't Stop Me Now. <laughs> Great song. Oh, that's got to be. Yeah, that's that's got to be that, my song. That's, that's a good soundtrack. Live by that motto. Oh, yes. Brilliant. Right, so let's um, let's dive in a bit more. So your, your experience, your... your um, your talents, I said you're very passionate, you're, you're one of the most knowledgeable people I know around this space, particularly in kind of, um, as you put, that kind of storytelling element, that taking the data, understanding it uh, at kind of a, a raw level, but transposing it or turning it into a way of thinking, a way of uh, approaching data that is accessible and, and addressable. And I think that's a really, it's probably a fairly rare trait and I think it's a very valuable trait right now. So um, I hope we get to kind of dive into a bit of that. But um, I think everybody would agree that data in some way, shape or form has always been an important part of every company's success. And data's fed so many things, but um, you've got to treat it right. You've got to use it in the right ways. And sometimes companies um, get that right. Sometimes they get it wrong. But in general, what's your kind of take on the role that data plays within companies and, and particularly around their strategies and potentially how's that kind of evolved in the last few years um, and kind of the engagements that you've had? Oh, that's a brilliant question. So firstly, I'd say there there is a direct correlation between data use and data maturity in a company and its market capitalization. So I, I think we know uh, that if you get it right culturally and with skills and get the right data in the hands of the right people, um, that your business will grow and you'll be building a sustainable business. So um, I start to unpack it with when I'm talking to clients, because I go, let's just make some decisions about data. And we did a similar process at WPP. Do you want to own all the data or do you want to focus on access? We talk about connect, not collect at WPP. Data, it's it's wrong to say it's an asset. It's not an asset. It's a, it's a, it's a big cost and a liability um, unless you build everything else around it. So how much to collect, how much to buy, what is valuable, I often suggest to clients that they consider um, if it were to be implemented, that there would be an externality tax for hosting and storing data, which was discussed in New York in the last years. Like imagine paying tax on it, then that might uh, make you think a bit more about what you're collecting and what's valuable rather than this safety net of I'll just have everything and I'll create a target that I'm going to have two billion rows of data and I'm going to get all of this identity. So I think if you think about, if I can get people to think about what do you need to know about your consumers? What does your, what does your best consumer look like? What's your definition of best? And then how much do you want to collaborate? Culturally, you're going to collaborate with others, which is what I love uh, in for some and where we came in, you know, it's about collaboration and people can make conscious decisions of, I want to share my data with that company and we'll get a reciprocity clear value exchange with consumers. So I think if people unpack the decisions of what they actually want the role of data to be, because you can outsource it all and third party it all and go for very low risk. Yep. Or you can go, actually, I want all my consumers who interact with me as a brand every month to know what we do with the data and I'm going to go for a transparency. And actually, you know, we can't assume that individuals don't want to share their data because we know they do. And they they want to be recognized i love it when a brand recognizes me as a loyal consumer so we we don't want to go too far of you know not collect and first i hear first party data's dead and third party data is dead and it's all zero party <laughs> data and it's like oh okay oh, yeah maybe geez. all of those things but actually what's the what's the role of data in that business is they need to know their consumers and they need to know where they can be more efficient and They've got decisions to make around that. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I, um, just as a kind of a um, adjacent to that, I, I think we've always been challenged as an industry in getting the um, correlation between knowledge uh, about a user and the value that they get as a result of us having that knowledge. And, and I think 
that's led to perhaps some of those views of um, I don't want you to have my data because it's big and scary and what you're going to do with it. And actually, often the outputs are really positive for people and the opportunities it creates are really positive. And for companies, it's a great thing to be able to, to, to work with that data. So I mean, you're so, you're so right. When I worked at Dunhumby, so, you know, Tesco Club Card, customers of Tesco would call if their mailer was late because it was so clear what a loyal customer was. And it wasn't just about how much you spent. But if, if, if you did your main shop at Tesco, whether you were a single person or had 25 people living in your house, you would get the best price. And that was a clear value exchange. And you would share your shopping data and you'd get great relevant uh, offers back. Yep. And for people to call and say, where's my mailer? I think <laughs> it, was, it just blew my mind. But I, but I haven't seen anyone get that value exchange and the reciprocity and the trust and the transparency so spot on that you call and go, where's my part of yeah, the reward we, for the data? We, we don't get people phoning us up anymore or asking those questions. But I do wonder, um, just on you know, kind of continuing that theme, I do wonder whether... The, the rise of more uh, first-party data, the rise of technologies like clean rooms that make that data more accessible in a much safer way, maybe there is a chance now to start um, that kind of twofold approach of saying um, the technology to, to underpin the security and the, the privacy and the safety of that data now exists in a much better way than it used to, number one. But number two, our ability to work with it is much greater. We can partner with more people. We can create more understanding. So the value we can give you, the things that we can do to make our messaging to you and our value and our offers, et cetera, to you better, maybe we get to start to kind of balance the privacy and the performance a bit more. I I'd like totally to, I'd like to think agree. So. I, no, I, th I mean, you, you should. And I think with we celebrate that third-party cookies are going to go at some point because <laughs> the word tracking Amen. is horrible. It's 2023. We track people that they don't know that they're being followed and just treating people online and in other parts of the marketing ecosystem as if it was real life. You wouldn't follow someone around a shopping center. Um, and from the individual's point of view, I maybe would be more conscious of data if I if I realized at that point I'm on the sofa searching uh, for stuff that that's being collected and what that might play back. So, yeah, I think you're I think you're right. I think they'll and it should be celebrated and enhanced that this is this is what data is about me as around and this is who's commercializing it and monetizing it and and maybe i have more say in who gets to monetize it and maybe i use it as a as a slightly negative actually you brand i don't like you you don't get to have it but you brand i like you so yep. you can have my data and i and i but i maybe i maybe i should have more autonomy of who gets that yeah, I, I, I think that would be a good thing um, broadly. And I think you know, maybe we're on a journey towards that space. I think there's a long way to go, but I think you know, maybe we're on that journey. And I think that comes from points you were making earlier about you don't necessarily need loads of data. It's not just about how much you collect. It's about the quality and the depth and the understanding that you get from it. Um, that's as valuable as you know, collect two million records. Well, what if those two million records are rubbish? I mean, totally. And I was suggest to clients they look at their call center data because that's going to give them a really good if we look if we stop talking about data and look at signals yep. have a look about what people are saying about you on twitter uh if that's still a thing have a have a look at when people call you and what they're saying to you because your consumers are giving you signals what markets are you growing in what when are you not growing where have you had yeah. a big competitor launch Everybody, whether they think they've got data or not, has that data as a business because it's fundamentally how they run their business. And if they if they thought differently about the supply chain data, yep. about what markets are growing, where they've got positive sentiment, all of that is very accessible data. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, if we roll kind of all that up, I guess a, a, a term that's been used probably to death um, is the term big data. But I guess it all rolls up into that kind of... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you to, uh, to those not familiar with it, please explain what it is. But I think the raspberry probably explains what it is. But help us understand why, why you blew the raspberry and, and, and how we should think about the types of data and, and um, you know, the world in which we now operate. Uh, firstly, I always tell people big data was created by companies that had big servers to sell. <laughs> there is that, yep. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then also that a lot of data, and so I hear the stat of 90% wafted around, it's all bloody useless. So I think the concept of it needing to be big. Now, that's not to take away statistical robustness or any of the you know, statistical or data science practices. Um, but we launched a creative data school in the community last year, and I, I used this exercise, which might explain it. it. I think the kids understood it. I told them to look at a supermarket receipt. And I said, tell me what information you can glean about the shopper from looking at this receipt. Okay, I'm, and then, I'm intrigued. And then I nudged them because they'll go, oh, they bought, uh, you know, a bottle of Coca-Cola and some toilet roll. And I was like, well, what size was the shop? Oh, it was, a, you know, it was a metro or it was a local. I go, well, what does that tell you? Oh, they probably walked there. Okay. And how big a pack of toilet roll and Coca-Cola did they buy? Oh, well, it was like a nine. Oh, well, okay. If it was nine rolls of loop, do you think that's one person who lives? So what? what's an assumption and what's a fact? But actually the time of day, the the nature of the store, the size of the basket, how they paid, all of that information, what town they were in. I said, all of that, actually think about that just from one shopper going into one shop once, how much yep. data is created. Yep. And then I get them to think about that, you know, 65 million X, whatever. <laughs> yep. um, and then imagine that online. And then you're online and you're searching for something. What what signals are you creating from whether you start at Google or whether you start at Amazon or other search engines and e-commerce sites are available? And all of that leaves data and that gets stored somewhere, copied multitude of times, gets sold, interrogated. So that's how I explain it. But normally I think I try and steer people to celebrate. Yeah, Small, so I guess um, to, to champion the phrase big data, um, maybe <laughs> maybe what we're saying there is uh, the traditional concept of big data means lots of data. In reality, what we're actually saying is big data is um, more deep than it is broad. It's not just about broad, it's about deep. It's about what things, it's about the volume of knowledge I can get on an individual that helps me make more decisions about them. Even if I don't have many individuals, it's the depth of knowledge that I can get. And actually, probably the most important thing playing on the uh, the uh, receipt thing is it's saying it's the things that I can learn. It's the it's the connectivity of that information and what that creates for me, um, and how that drives thoughts, ideas, outcomes, etc. Um, from that knowledge that I can infer or, or directly get. That that perhaps is the concept of big data is the is the, the bigness of the things I can do rather than the size of it itself. All right, I'll give you that. And it, I mean, we we talk about data variety is more important than data volume. And I think actually, if if you've got a big data focus of we just need to collect everything, I don't yeah. think that's the right approach. But I do think a lot of CPGs, automotives, you know, the the big industry players that they've always had traditionally a third party sat between them and the consumer. You know, you've got car dealerships, you've got supermarkets. I can understand why they've got big goals to collect data about their consumer. I think where culturally brands and companies get it wrong is if if the business case needs to be about big numbers, which I've had experienced this, it makes it yep. really hard. Data governance cannot be put in as a return on investment to get business case. You know, storing data safely, employing engineers, uh, having proper procedures, getting accessible policies and terms and conditions, all of that costs money. Yep. And if you're focusing just on a business case that's got to deliver ROI of X in however many years, the numbers just get silly and not actually the point. And, actually, and if you had a strategy, we are going to collect a lot of data about our consumers because they're in a lot of markets or they, you know, they're in a lot of categories and we've got loads of categories. And actually I want to know what a really good customer looks like. And I, I want to know their pets or their kids or what is important to them or where they're at. And that I'm going to focus on relevance rather than just personal data. I think, I think yep. that's okay. Yeah. I'll no, no, that. I, I, I'd agree with you there. And I think that's a, a nice segue into, um, 
the value that can be created for companies. And you, you talked earlier, you said two things which stood out. One is that um, you love it when you're in front of customers and you're able to do that storytelling um, you know, and, and, and be part of that. Um, and for the life of me, I can't remember the second thing that you said, which is really bad because I thought of it. <laughs> sure, and it went straight really out of my brain. That's, that's, that's bad. <laughs> no, it really was. It's bad data, but I got focused on the first thing. But um, but the question is, and I'll probably remember the point halfway through and come back to it. But the question is, um, if you're thinking about you know, what we've talked about data in, in terms of the, the things that we can, the transcendental things we can we can kind of glean from information and the stories that we can tell, how is that transposed from your experience in being in front of customers and being that storyteller? How is that transposed into value? How do they actually turn that into something that's meaningful to them over and above just a nice story? I mean, I often talk about the, you're buying a present. You know, how do you reward your consumers if you don't know who they are? What's important to them? You know, my first data project at Dunhumby was doing some, it, I didn't do it, econometric modelling. Um, but for a lovely. brand that wanted to know should they do a buy one, get one free or a three for two? And obviously there's a volume goal and difference there, but actually would their most loyal customers who pick their brand rather than just whatever brand is on discount, which would they prefer? And I, and I thought that was a really interesting, useful, commercial, measurable approach on how can I shift as many units as possible to the right people and not over discount just the people who, you know, just want to go for the cheapest and don't have. So, you know, it's an investment in brand saliency and brand equity as part of the, the strategy. And I, I think that purposeful data use, you can use it as part of your marketing. And I'd love to see terms and conditions become more accessible. And I've seen like Monzo do it when you look at the terms and conditions they're not behaving or they're not talking to you like you've got a law degree. They're saying, we collect your spend data and we give it to a receipt company and so that we can tell you how much you spent. And it's like, oh, thanks, I can understand. I can yep. understand that. Yep. So I think making it part of the engine and the, the DNA of the brand of the company, I think that's, that's really important. Yep, don't know if that answers sense. your question. No, no, it, it, it doesn't. And that Monzo example, I think, speaks back to that value exchange we talked about earlier. Of if if you can understand the value that's being created and you buy into that value, then you're very comfortable with the process. And I, I doubt they get very much pushback at all. Mm. But um, again, just using that receipt because it's become a bit of a theme of a, a kind of a focal point of, of ideas and thoughts. Um, often, certainly in my experience, uh, people get a little bit obsessed with data in terms of deriving absolute outcomes. Now, I, I want this to be definitive. I want this to be specific to a question, definitive answer. The data I've got will give me that answer because it's data. And I wonder whether some of the art, not necessarily the science of data, needs to, to kind of rise and fall, where it's not necessarily about a definitive answer. It's about an indication. It's about uh, a general direction. It's about uh, an understanding of a, of a, a broader kind of uh, view of something that gives you a sense of, of the right things to be looking at or the right things to be doing when you're talking to customers are they still kind of obsessed with that absolute answer or is there a church around um using data in, in kind of a more a broader kind of informative sense rather than an absolute sense that's a really windy question so i hope no i really okay. like it i mean it, it fits with where where we're noodling at the moment because there's the common practice of what data do you need and then we'll go and get the data for you yep. and that's yep. a kind of consultative approach but WPP is a creative transformation company we can think differently and we're noodling at the moment of actually using data to generate questions thinking about signals rather than data so actually if you you don't have to have all the answers or all the questions how about yep. you look at what's going on and then see what questions that generates and see if you've got the data there but I, I, in my experience, if you ask teams what data they need, they don't know. They either yep. say they've got too much and not enough resource, or they say they haven't got enough and they don't know what they need. And I, and I say to every client, you don't have all the data you need, but you don't use all the data that you have. So yep. maybe explore what you've got and brainstorm around what might you do with your ingredient data and how that might feed other parts of the business and not just the supply chain department, you know, and, and how, how could 
CMOs and chief data officers work more closely together. I think that's a big opportunity. I don't, I don't necessarily see them as, in some instances, as aligned as they might be. And I wonder if CMOs think the chief data officers are there to mark their homework, you know, to justify <laughs> why they, yeah, why they need less money. And actually, this year, I'm really going to look on how we can make sure those two teams are really aligned on the role of data for creative transformation. Yeah, it's kind of a symbiotic relationship, isn't it? And I think that has yeah. to be right across the organisation. I mean, as, as data becomes so much more intrinsic to, as we talked about earlier, intrinsic to the success of companies and the, and the journey that they have to go on and the, the route that they take, you have to have all parts of the organisation bought into to data being part of that journey. It can't just I be mean, in isolation. You have to create a culture where people can go, this didn't work. Yeah. And, and otherwise people start to pretend things did work or they mask the truth. And then you, you culturally are in a bit of um, a bit stuck because actually what you want is people to be okay that they failed. I just listened to a podcast on the founder of Ikea and his philanthropic organization. He would ask question every meeting. What have you failed at this week? And it was very much about leaning towards the learning. And I and I think that's really important. So if people are worried about failing or they've set KPIs that they know they're bonused against, then that's the behaviour you're going to get. Absolutely, yeah. If you reward a certain type of behaviour, don't expect to see anything else but that behaviour. Well, that's what you're going to get. And then yeah, you need absolutely. to do year on year. And if you need to show growth, oh, we've promised 3% growth, then those KPIs are going to stay the same. Yeah. it's. Um, I've talked a lot the last few weeks uh, prior to Christmas about um, why the third party cookie going away is, is good for the industry. And it talks a little bit to that kind of, um, not necessarily rewarding bad behaviour, but certainly um, getting the thing you want if you don't look beyond the thing that you're looking at. It's really bad English. But um, no, I talked about third party cookie in the sense that um, third party cookie made uh, the use of data on the internet easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just easy stick a cookie on there and just track what people do and we had to think about it but i also think it made us lazy and lazy is perhaps another word for for uh um kind of just what you're explaining of saying um you kind of couldn't get it wrong because nobody was really thinking laterally or differently about what data can do and the role it can play and the insights that we can bring because we all just were like yeah well cookies easy we'll just all accept cookies the way forward so one of the things i'm most excited about the kind of this evolution that we're going through in terms of the understanding, the appreciation, the use of data is it's getting us out of those comfort zones that third party cookie put us in and made us challenge things like, we used to do it this way, why did we do it that way? And how could we do it different? And what could we learn? And that's, I think that's a really exciting part of, uh, of where the industry is going. It totally is, because it's a, it's a, if your consumers found out what you were doing and you've got any nerves <laughs> about that, <laughs> yeah, you, you know you're doing the wrong thing or if it appeared on the, the front page of a newspaper and you suddenly go, oh, okay, uh, everyone else was doing it. So we thought it was fine. I mean, I think it is really good for a reset. I do recognise that with things like third party cookies going, the measurement might be challenged. And I, and I get that trade off. Um, and that's something that we need to talk to clients about and make sure they understand that what what you can track horrible words you can measure and what you can measure you can improve and so maybe we need yep. to find new ways to to show effectiveness yeah absolutely i think that's the um it's a challenge for us but i think it's an exciting thing ahead or opportunity ahead is is looking at those new ways of working i think measurement's a really great example of we just can't do what we used to do so that's no. making us rethink it's making us reassess it's making us understand what do we have what questions do we want to answer and then how do we kind of bring those together? And I think that's, um, uh, it's a great time to be alive in that respect. That is, and you know, it's okay, that's gone, that's last year. Let's start again rather than try and find workarounds. And we're really committed to that here on, it's not a workaround for a third party cookie. It's yep. let's find a modern way to market. And it might be looking at an event someone's going to or an occasion they're at. And it's where are they at at the moment? It's not about whether there are, middle-aged homemaker who likes coupons you know 
You. Is that you? <laughs> yeah, you're pointing at me. <laughs> <laughs> you're a middle-aged homemaker who likes coupons. Brilliant. There's loads of ads coming your way, Stu. <laughs> yeah, there's the metadata on this podcast that can use to target you, exactly. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Good. So in this kind of emerging space, and, and I say emerging, you know, data's been around a long time, but, but the, the evolution, some would say perhaps the revolution of, of the use of data, Technology plays a really important part of that. You know, technology has unlocked a lot of this opportunity and will continue to do so. So when you're looking at the industry, you, you have a really privileged position, perhaps, of, uh, of seeing more than most in the position you're in. You probably see a lot of technology, you see a lot of vendors. What excites you what, 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 when you're looking at what you go, that's really cool. You can say InfoSum, that's fine. But outside of InfoSum, what, what makes you think that's really cool, that's really interesting, that's really exciting, I can see how that can make a difference? And also, what do you think is missing? Where, where's the next kind of opportunity for evolution? I mean, I will say InfoSum because I do remember the first I time you, I, paid you. I met you <laughs> and I thought about some use cases with capability and discussed it with clients on first-party data enrichment and they totally got it and it, it opened up a world of collaboration that up to then would have become an absolute legal nightmare so I, I do yeah. I do think that's one one um you've you've talked about chat GPT I think generative AI is a really interesting topic I don't want to talk about it too much because everybody in the world is talk, talking about it yep. um but I do think people thinking about how to make it accessible to non-data scientists and using AI to create text and images and video, I think is is interesting. I'm most interested from that in the where it's going to go from IP and copyright. I think I've got a nerdy interest yep. as much as I like the ethics of who owns the data and you know who decides. I think that the um, the ownership and the rights and where that's heading and how different countries are going to make different decisions on what can be uh or ip can be assigned to ai and the role of ai in humans i think that's a really that's pandora's box you're opening there yeah of, um, of, uh, of intrigue but to go back to a passion of mine i'm we're working with a company called flourish who do scrolly telling and i'm i'm really scrolly telling scrolly telling so if you've been on um any social media where you've seen that kind of uh, bouncing bar charts that over time you can see the changes. Yes. Or you've been on a web page where uh, the copy changes as you scroll down and things pop up to explain. So to bring the data to life. And we've we've partnered with them and we've, we've done data challenges uh, around getting data in to flourish. And I'm really enjoying that because actually it's not necessarily the data scientists who are really excited about using that. It's it's Excel users, data data literate Excel users who might who might do a pivot table and then put it into PowerPoint are suddenly going, Oh, I can actually bring this to life a bit more. And I think that's evolving how you deliver insights to people and, and anything that stops it being a data chart and makes it an insight or challenges people's assumptions, I I love. Yeah, and, and both those examples, um, I mean, those data scientists are worth their weight in gold and, and, and long may that continue because they do amazing things. But both of those examples you've given with um, chat GPT and the second one was called? Flourish. Uh, Flourish. Um, I guess they, they almost democratise data science. They make the output of data science, which is the cool earnings and the, the, the kind of cool outcomes, accessible to many rather than a few. You don't need to be a data scientist to be able to achieve that. And I think that's, um, for me, that's a really key part of the future of data is making it as accessible as possible. I totally agree. And it's it's not to put data scientists out of work, but can we treat data scientists with the respect that they deserve? Let's take yeah. away the grunt work and the stupid requests and the, you know, I had it in teams before where they get asked something and some poor data scientist spends months and then the business user's forgotten they've asked and it's all moved on. And I think, you know, to actually 
celebrate data scientists and really articulate the different roles in the data ecosystem and to celebrate their experience, their knowledge and to use them properly and um, to let other people play. They may actually make people better business partners to the scientists and ask properly of what data they need and what they're looking to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, a more accessible audience and, and use the skills and the, the specialist skills in the specialist areas, not on, as you say, not on the, can you just left left remove this from my Excel template, please? Oh. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, and you've talked a lot about WPP and, and your role there is obviously, um, it's a great role and I imagine hugely exciting. But WPP is an organisation. What role does do organisations like WPP play in this space? How can they help drive the, the narrative forward? And how can they help create the evolution that, that you know, we want to be part of? I guess there's two parts here. So firstly, WPP's vision is to create better futures for our people, our planet, our clients and our communities. Yep. So the role of data and AI in that can be immense be it training and you know we've done demystify AI programs to improve data literacy within the organization and I spoke earlier about creative data school that's improving data and AI literacy yep. in schools or to less advantaged communities so I, I think there's a massive role and then for the planet as a company that employs 109,000 people and operates in pretty much every market we we have an influence, we have, you know, we buy a lot of data, we use a lot of data, we have a lot of people. So I think that the scale um, mixed with our vision, I think we have a, a big role to play. And then the, the, the special WPP lens is as a creative transformation company, I think if anyone has a right to play in thinking differently about data, yep. and thinking more creatively about how to use, how to access how to storytell how to activate data then I, I love that about this company because we do and that I think I say to the data and AI community there's no ceiling for creatively using data you can take weather data I've worked in retail but weather gets the blame for everything <laughs> if we gave you all weather data you could all do something differently yep with it it's back to that receipt again is what does it tell you that isn't yeah. obvious yeah, and that's that ability and willingness to embrace that creativity, and, and that has to come from the top, and it has to be um, you know, part of your DNA. So to have a company in, that, that embraces that at its core, I think I can see why that uh, why that's exciting. I can see why you're uh, you like what you do. Thanks. We've do, I mean we've got amazing case studies. We've just done a data annual. It's the second one we've gathered all the the quirky case studies of how. Agencies have, um, yeah, I've talked about the ketchup one. I love that from Ogilvy. We've got Wonderman Thompson used it to describe, you could describe paint colours and it would tell you which paint from Sherwin-Williams could could be described as, you know, lost at sea or whatever. I mean, it's like really <laughs> brilliant and it's old, but it's my favourite of uh, the British Airways. You spoke about it earlier, but it's a, a campaign where there was a kid on a billboard and when the plane went over, the kid appeared on the billboard and said what the yes. plane was going to and from. And I was like, that's a really easy data set that you've taken operational data and done something magical with it. It yep. wasn't a WPP campaign. I've got an aura ring that tracks sleep. And they did a campaign on the night of the US election saying how much less sleep people <laughs> had had. You know, I, I, love, I love those. We're just thinking about how you can bring to life an interesting data set. Yeah, and, and to roll it right back to where we started with, um, uh, you know, kind of consumer perception, um, the better the execution of the campaign, the better the creativity around it, the more people understand and, and appreciate the value that their data creates and the more willing they are to, to, to work in that way, I guess. So it's a, it's a self-fulfilling kind of prof a prophecy or a virtuous circle. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and it should be this We picked up a signal from here and then we implemented this. And there's something yeah. there about building trust and listening. Um, one of my favorite is an eight year old boy wrote into Betty Crocker, you know, the pre-made cake bakes and said, why is all your campaigns for women? Boys like to 
cook too and they made a change and that you don't need a lot of data for that but culturally everybody rallied round and they changed the labeling of the food in the UAE and uh, they open sourced it and they made that signal part of a, a refresh of the brand and I think that's really cool yeah yeah definitely one more question um, and oh. then uh, well actually two more questions so one more question around kind of you your job etc and then just a final question on uh, who you think we should interview next but um, I'm going to ask you to get your crystal ball out and I'm going to ask you to say, look for the next kind of five to ten years, that kind of time frame. What's your kind of predictions around um, data science, data collaboration, the use of data, big data, we're allowed to say big data anymore. What, what do you think we'll be look, looking at and talking about in kind of the next five to ten years? So I think all jobs will involve data in some guise. So I think at some point there'll be an evolution where you don't, mention data just like we don't always talk about digital digital gets dropped as a word i think data will um i think it'll be much more accessible so low code no code for people being able to think about what they need to do to perform in their jobs i think there will be more collaboration companies as they increase their data maturity will stop being so scared about collaborating or opening up their data and will share it more either for health or societal benefits or for commercial, any of that. Um, but they will recognize that doing good is good for business. And they will, I think the maturity of data for good and good business will evolve so that actually it does make more sense. And the role of data in building a sustainable business, feeding into ESG, HR, data, I think will we'll all mash We'll all mash together. What an interesting future that will be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you'll be even more excited. I think I'll be, I'll just, I'll just be squeaking. You won't want me on a podcast. Yeah, no, of course you will. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, one last question before I wrap up. Um, this podcast is about talking to interesting and innovative people in the in kind of the data space. So if you had to nominate somebody for the next Identity Architects, who would that be? Uh, you've got to speak to Pete Williams, who's the Chief Data Officer of Penguin Random House. I met him okay. when he was Head of Data at M&S and I was at Boots, and we've been buddies since then. And he was the first person who showed me about Data for Good and hackathons. And at the time, he was running sessions uh, of using his data teams to do good work with charity. And he really inspired me. And I... I nicked that idea, and, and we've done we've done that too. But he's brilliant. Brilliant. All right. Well, uh, we'll see if we can set that up, and uh, we'll let you know if we do, and, and you can listen in. I will. Thanks, brilliant. Steve. Just uh, remains for me to say thank you very much, Di. It's been lovely talking to you. I can say your uh, your passion and your energy and your uh, insight is infectious. Um, it's been a real joy hearing you talk and, and learning from you. So thank you again for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been awesome. Thanks very much. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks again to Di for joining us on Identity Architects. That was a fascinating discussion and a great way to kick off the new year of the podcast. All that leaves for me to do is to remind you to hit that subscribe button so you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But until then, thanks for listening.